Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to Ephesians. We're in now chapter 2. Okay, so Audra Day. Is that ringing any? Does that sound familiar to you? Audra Day. Does anybody know who Audra Day is? She, um, she has a phenomenal song called Rise Up. Anybody heard that song? Just quickly, I got a couple folks. All right, great. So I need to educate everybody. All right, it's an R&B song that swept the world in 2015. Uh, it won the Songwriters Award for the Soul Train Music Awards. It was nominated for a Grammy for Best R&B Performance. If I could sing it, <laughs> I'd sing it. But you don't want me to sing it. You really don't. But I wish I had a voice that could sing this song. So I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to try to just do a little mixture of giving you the lyrics and maybe a little passion besides it. Here we go. First rounds of lyrics go like this. You've broken, you're broken down and tired. And she's got this phenomenal voice, so just pretend this is a phenomenal voice that you're hearing right now. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round. And you can't find the fighter, right? So we're going to walk it out. And then the chorus comes in, and it starts with, And I'll rise up. I'll rise like the day. I'll rise up. I'll rise unafraid. I'll rise up. And I'll do it a thousand times again. (laughs) And there's just, it's powerful, right? Second round of lyrics go like this. When the silence isn't quite quiet, and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe, and I know you feel like dying, we're going to take it to the feet, and I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up in spite of the ache, and I'll rise up, right, and I'll do it a thousand times again. And then the last Lines of the lyrics are so profoundly prophetic. It's like they speak into the human condition. And she says, all we need, all we need, all we need, all you need, she says, is hope. And then she roars, and I'll, and we'll rise up. We'll rise like the day, she says, and we'll rise up. And we'll rise high like the waves and we'll rise up in spite of the ache. And we'll do it a thousand times again. This morning, Ephesians 2 takes a twist. It takes a turn and it calls all of us to rise up. It's an invitation to rise up, but it's more than an invitation. It actually, by this passage, will cause you to rise up. Literally, right now, rise up for the hearing of God's Word. (coughs) Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, 
by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all, before we take a seat, because I, I just thought of something. I saw it in the text. I, I saw that. I saw that. All right, I want you to look at uh, verse 8. This is, this is almost like everybody's go-to memorized verse, right? Does everybody kind of have this thing memorized? I want you to see something here. It says, and this is not, from, this is not your own doing. Do you see that? Uh, that's, a, that's an interpretation, which is fantastic, but I want you to hear what the original says. It says, this is not from out of you. Phenomenal. Everything that's talked about in this passage, Paul wants you to know it's not from out of you. It doesn't come from you. You can't do it. And then it's, it's a parallel right on uh, verse 9, not as a result of works. That's also an interpretation. It says not from out of works can the stuff in this passage happen. Not from out of you can the stuff of this passage happen. Not from anything you do can the stuff of this passage happen. <laughs> Rise up. Please be seated. So, O oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask that you would give power, present power, that you would meet with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rise up. Rise like the day. Rise up. Rise high like the waves. Rise up in spite of the ache and do it a thousand times again. <laughs> but you say, but my ache is too great. But my ache is too great. So, Jeff, what does the Bible say to that? So, Jeff, preacher, how does God respond to that? The Bible says, you're right. You're absolutely right. Look at verse 1. And you, this is phenomenal what Paul does. When he wants to emphasize something, Paul's a master communicator. He's a master writer. When you move the original language, whatever you put to the front is actually the emphasis. So what he's doing here is he's saying, and you, and you. In other words, and you, I have something very, very important to tell you. I have something that you need to know. I want to tell you the truth about you. I want to explain you. You want to solve the riddle of you. You want to know why you do what you do. You want to know why you think the way you think, the way you feel, the way you feel, the way you live, the way you live, the way you relate, the way you relate, the way you love, how you love, the way you trust. Paul's saying, and you, I'm about ready to tell you. I'm about ready to explain everything to you. And you, being dead in trespasses and sins, shocking, 
the way that Paul wants to explain this. And now this is very shocking because you can read this almost in a past tense, but Paul puts it in the present tense, even though the translations put it in the past tense. Because when it's in the past tense, when you're talking to Christians, we all go, oh yeah, that's what it was like in the past. But Paul, by using the present, wants to grab you by the scruff of the neck, pull you into the text and say, you, you being dead in the trespasses and sins, he's basically using the most powerful image he can possibly do. He's basically saying, you are a corpse sealed in a tomb. And the tomb is sin. And it's a power beyond your control. So what we're about to talk about can't come from out of you. There's no work that we can do from us that can produce what we're about to talk about. Trespasses and sins are the realm of the dead. It's the location of the dead. It's the place of the dead. That, that in is just telling you, here's what's going on. Here's the location. So sin is a tomb, Paul's saying. And he continues in verse 4, but notice what he's saying. He's saying you're a corpse sealed in a tomb, but you're walking around. Do you see that in verse 2? And then in verse 3, you're living. So in other words, you're a corpse sealed in the tomb, but you're the walking dead. <laughs> you're the living dead. In other words, to use our language today, to use a very cultural relevant image today, you're a zombie. You're physically alive, but spiritually dead. And he's not done. Look what he does in verse 2. He's saying, not only are we a zombie, but we're a zombie according to. In other words, there's a reason why we're a zombie. According to the age of this world. Now, your translation probably says course. That's a that's okay, but it doesn't get at it. When it talks about age, it's talking about an epic. It's talking about a realm. It's talking about an eon. We're a zombie according to the age of this world. And he continues, according to the ruler of the realm of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now powerfully working in the sons of disobedience. What are we talking about here? Here's what we're talking about. When The Walking Dead became a global phenomenon, remember 10 years ago, AMC did it. Y'all might remember that. Some of you might not. 10 years is a long time, I'm realizing. It's not as long as it used to be for me, but it was. When it was the international obsession 10 years ago, I mean, it hit the world and people were obsessed. Everyone was doing this kind of stuff. Uh, our youngest at the time, Belle, was nine. Uh, and we started watching it together as a family. <laughs> Don't judge my parenting. It was Cal was 15 at the time, Bryn was 13 at the time, Knox was 11 at the time, Bell was 9 at the time. Um, Nancy did judge my parenting. She couldn't believe that I was letting the kids watch this. She says, you're going to give them nightmares, and they're going, when they wake up, they're waking you up because they're not waking we up. She was so traumatized. Nancy was so traumatized by The Walking Dead. She would actually go to the kitchen to get something to eat. She'd close her eyes and try to cover her ears at the same time. She couldn't stand the sounds coming from the zombies. She, it was traumatizing for her. Sorry, honey. So this is a public confession for her. Not really. <laughs> It's not really genuine, it's not really sincere, so I apologize for that too. Several episodes in, Belle finds me, like it's first season, Belle finds me in the study and I could tell something is bothering her and something is on her mind and some, it was all over her face and she says, Daddy, and just time out, I, I miss those days. I miss being called Daddy, right? Oh, I miss those days. Gosh. Now it's like, hey you, dude. Um, 
pass the popcorn. Uh, Daddy, what are we going to do when the zombie apocalypse comes? This is a sincere question. My little nine-year-old girl looking up at me with these big eyes. What are we going to do, Daddy? (laughs) So what did I tell her? I mean, what would you tell her? What would you tell your girl, your youngest girl? What would you say? Well, I told the first service, and I'm a little scared now to tell the second service. But here's what I said. Do you want to know what I said? Okay. Don't judge my parenting. Okay. I said, don't worry, honey. I'll kill them all. I will not let anything happen to you. Right? The worldwide zombie phenomenon has now been going on for 10 plus years. Netflix, comics, books, literature. It's in teen writings. It's in movies. It's everywhere. But you know what's so fascinating about this phenomenon? It actually touches something that's real. Incredibly real. Because the whole world, it's international. The whole world knows that things just aren't right. What does it touch? Well, what it touches, in my opinion, is a legit zombie apocalypse. And I think Paul would agree. In other words, that apocalyptic darkness that, comes, that came into the world and turned image bearers into the spiritually dead, the walking dead. That cosmic chaos that has invaded the world and corrupted the world and turned it into the age of this world and turned it into the decreation of this world. It unleashed a flood bigger than the original flood. That is, is a zombie apocalypse that's happening. I mean, Netflix has another global phenomenon over the global blockbuster called Stranger Things. Stranger Things calls the dark powers that invaded this world. What does it call it? The upside-down world. Isn't that interesting? You have the world and then you have an upside down world. There is a zombie apocalypse. Paul calls it the age of this world. He calls it the realm of the ruler of the air in verse 2. So what's happening is our culture says a zombie apocalypse is coming. The Bible says it's already here. The Bible says you're already in it. You're already a corpse sealed in the tomb of the dark powers. The world is upside down. The world has been turned inside out. The world is not a place of light. The world is a place of darkness. Rise up. Rise like the day. Rise up. Rise high like the waves. Rise up in spite of the ache and do it a thousand times again. But my ache is too great. God says you're right. And it's even worse than you think. Look at verse 3. The zombie, this corpse sealed in the tomb of sin, lives in passion. So now the zombie is being described. Here's what a zombie existence looks like. Here's, if you want to get theological, this is what an unregenerate, existence looks like. This is what an unbelieving existence looks like. This is what it looks like to be separated from God, 
spiritually, though physically alive. Here's what it looks like. It looks living in passions. Now, the Bible is so fascinating because the word is not... When you hear passions, you naturally think, oh, yeah, that's bad stuff. But it's not bad stuff. In the Bible, it's called... It takes a word called desires and adds a preface to it called epi or mega. This is something called mega epi desires. So we live in the mecca mecca or mega desires of the flesh, which for Paul is just code for sinful nature. So he's saying the sinful nature, the old self, the edemic self, the unregenerate self, the shadow self, the collapsed self, we're calling it the zombie self. This thing is loaded with mega epi desires. What are mega epi desires? You know what they are? They're just normal desires that have gone mega, gone over, gone cosmic. Well, what do you mean, Jeff? Well, it's kind of like this. Uh, is the desire for comfort a bad thing? Is the desire to have comfort relationally a bad thing? Is the desire to have comfort circumstantially in your life events, to have the world work out right, like your coffee actually tastes good in the morning and you're driving to work and no one cuts you off and gives you the finger and all that kind of stuff. Isn't that a good thing when that happens? Those are a, that's a good day. Is it wrong to desire that? No, it's not wrong to desire that. The Bible says to desire is simply to be a human being. But what happens... When relational comfort goes mega, you know what happens? We avoid doing the hard work of relationships when that happens. Because when relational comfort goes mega, it is incredibly uncomfortable to do the hard work of relationships. It's incredibly uncomfortable to sacrificially love someone and serve someone and spend time with someone and to deplete yourself emotionally in order to lift someone else up emotionally. That's hard work. And if mega, epi, relational comfort is at stake and is going on, you will avoid that hard work. And then when there's relational conflict, good night. Who wants to do that hard work? When the Bible says, as long as it depends upon you, be at peace with somebody, it assumes that the other person can still be a jerk. But as long as it depends upon you, be at peace. That's hard work. But if relational comfort has gone mega, you don't do that hard work. A forgiving, seeking to understand, asking for forgiveness, reconciling. You just don't do it. What happens when circumstantial comfort goes mega? When life events don't go the way you want, what happens? You get crushed by life circumstances. You get devastated and paralyzed. You get absolutely depressed if the world doesn't line up the way you want it to line up. The internet doesn't work. Your car breaks down. Right? The zombie, Paul is telling us, by nature, only has mega epi desires. So we could do, I mean, I just gave you one illustration. Is the respect a bad desire? No. But what happens when it goes mega and epi? Is sexual desire a bad desire? No, it's actually God-given. What happens when it goes mega epi over? Do you see how we can do this? The desire to be loved and accepted. Is that a bad desire? No. But what happens when it goes mega? The zombie only has mega desires. But my ache is too great. 
And God says, you're right. It's even worse than you think. Look at verse 3 again. Carrying out, doing the mega desires of the flesh. Now here's the one that everybody freaks out about because nobody really knows what's going on here. And of the mind. Do you see that in verse 3? And of the mind. Literally, the translation is, and of the thinkings. <laughs> Everybody's wondering, well, what does this mean? Well, it, it means, what I think it means is this. Paul is talking about your mental health. In other words, mega desires of the mind, mega desires of thinkings, is obsessive thinking. It's plural thinking. It's addictive thinking. It's compulsive thinking. It's getting in your head thinking. It's the kind of thinking that happens when you lie awake at night and can't sleep. It's the kind of thinking that takes place when you start spinning a fairy tale world that doesn't exist. In the Old Testament, they were called false prophets. I, I kind of like want to bring that back into the New Testament. The New Testament calls it gossip and slander. That's okay, but I think the false prophet gets the better meaning. Because what does a false prophet do? A false prophet walks in and, and spins a world, creates a world that doesn't exist about God. You spin a world about yourself, who you are. You spin a world about other people. And when we spin a world about other people, we either make them the Savior or the evil one. We divinize our views, right? When we go mega epi thinkings, obsessive thinkings, our views, our politicians, our ideologies get divinized and the others get demonized. That's mega thinkings. And what Paul is saying is that every human being is mentally unhealthy. The zombie is mentally unhealthy inherently. My ache is too great. God says you're right. It's even worse than you think. Ephesians 1, right? We were just there. That 3 through 14 is one long sentence, right? We realized that. 202 words, remember that? And then we went into Ephesians 15 through 23, and we're like, oh no, it's another one sentence of 169 words. And then we get to Ephesians 2, and we think, I thought, whoo, got those out of the way. Let's go on to some more sentences and break down the concepts and the ideas so they're easier to follow. Well, guess what? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is another one long sentence of 124 words. The first lesson for you to realize in the book of Ephesians is English teachers hate Paul. That's the first thing you need to realize. These long sentences are ridiculous. These long sentences would not cut it with any English teacher today, which makes me incredibly happy because I love to break Greek, well, English grammar rules. I love doing that. Look at verse 5. We've got to find the verb of the one long sentence. We've got to find the main idea of the one long sentence. Did you find it in verse 5? Find it. Get your electronic device. Grab a Bible in front of your seat. Here it is. Raised us up with. You find it? This is the verb of the one long sentence. And what's so stunning about this word is that Paul makes it up. It's a made-up word. This word does not exist in the Greek language. This word does not exist in the Hebrew word. This word does not exist in the ancient world. In other words, this word does not exist in the world. It only exists in the Bible. <coughs> Which means... <coughs> Sorry, y'all. I thought I am done. Let me grab my Gatorade. I'm coming off the flu, remember? 
This means this is a word from another world. This means this is a gospel word. <clears throat> this means this is a Jesus word. Jesus brings this word into the world. So what does it mean? <coughs> what does this new word mean? Answer, when Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus rose from the tomb, he took you with him. He took you with him. Paul took two verbs and one preposition to make this word. When Jesus exited the sealed tomb, he says, I'm not leaving without you. So Jesus became the corpse sealed in the tomb in your place. Jesus became the zombie on the cross. And then three days later, rise up. Rise like the day. Rise up. Rise high like the waves. Rise up in spite of the ache and do it a thousand times again. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to be incredibly graphic, but I already have been. If you get to know me, that's, I kind of will just say anything sometimes. You are a zombie sealed in the tomb of sin. And Jesus says to you, rise up. I am your resurrection from the dead. And if you are a Christian, What's crazy is that you're no longer a zombie, which we're going to see in verse 10. You're actually a new creation. <coughs> it's crazy. But what's even crazier is this sense of you're no longer a zombie, which is a big deal. You're now a new creation, but you still have the zombie attached to you. And that is a dynamic that's just mysterious. It's a dynamic that's just splitness. It's a dynamic which is confusing and crazy. It's a dynamic that makes the Christian life crazy. Just read Romans 7. Paul will tell you how crazy it is. So here's the deal. Paul now, Jesus now, comes to the Christian and he says in light of this, rise up and do it a thousand times again. Because the Christian life, real Christianity is not about self-improvement. Christianity is not about getting your life straight. Christianity is not about fixing yourself. Remember, there's nothing that can come out of us. No works that can come out of us that can accomplish this. Christianity is ultimately about death and resurrection. And that means for the Christian, the resurrection is many, many resurrections in your life. In other words, the Christian life is a rhythm of death and resurrection. I mean, he's even put it into your day. He's even put it into the day. 24 hours, we got night, death. We got morning, resurrection. When you go to sleep, it's like death. Who wakes you up? How do you wake up? Nobody really knows how you wake up. How in the world do we all of a sudden wake up? I know you're going to say the alarm is going to be your two-year-old or it's going to be the dog licking your face, but ultimately, what really wakes us up? 
embedded into sleep and waking up is death and resurrection. Because Christianity is death and resurrection. So you rise up. You rise like the dead. You rise up. Rise high like the waves. You rise up in spite of the ache. And you do it a thousand times again. But you say, I don't like myself. There's nothing good about me, Jeff. There's nothing special about me. There's no talent. There's no gifting. There's no ability. There's no personality trait. There's no brains. There's no beauty. There's no bronze. There's no athleticism. There's no musicality. There's no artistic endeavors. There's nothing. I'm not even a good Christian. So Jeff, what does the Bible say to that? Preacher, what does God say to that? I'm going to do what I, I didn't like being done to me. My spiritual mentor is a guy named Dr. Hannah, and every time I'd ask him a question, he'd ask me another question, and I'd get frustrated. It just is frustrating, so I'm going to frustrate you because I'm going to ask you a question, but I generally want you to answer it. If this is you, if you think this way, I want you to answer this question. Why does God save sinners? Why does God rescue wrecked people? Why does God rise up the dead? Do you have an answer? Okay. Here's what God says why he does it. In verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, much mercy is why. Because of the great love which he has loved us, much love is why. Even when we were dead, made us alive. Do you see this? And then it says, by grace you are saved, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, here's the end for which all things are made. We are coming to a coming age. We are going to a future home. We are going, and here's the reason for it. He's saying everything that's happening here, this is why I do what I do, God is saying. This is why I save sinners. This is why I rescue the wreck. This is why I raise the dead, so that immeasurable grace will be shown to you. Much grace. This is breathtaking because what's happening here, we keep reading this, it says in this, this whole thing, comprehensive salvation, you're struggling with meaning, right? You're struggling with life. You're struggling with your identity. And this, all of that, does not come from you. Meaning, life, identity does not come from us. So in other words, it goes like this. What gives your life meaning right now? What gives your life meaning? What ends your sense of meaninglessness? This text says much mercy does. Okay, well, what about life? Like, what gives your life electricity? What gives your life electric? What makes your life energized? What makes your life happy? What gives you a solid joy? What gives you an energy to go throughout your day? What gets you up in the morning? What gives life and what ends the deadness in our lives? This text says much love. Okay, so what about an identity? What gives me an identity? What gives me a solid self? What gives me worth and value? What can I rest my significance on? What ends me not liking myself? And this text says, much immeasurable grace. 
Y'all, this is absolutely profound. This is absolutely powerful. This will absolutely change you. The most fundamental layer of meaning, according to the Bible, the most fundamental layer of life, according to the Bible, the most fundamental layer of your identity, according to the Bible, is the gracious love of Jesus. Much mercy, much love, much grace. Not what you think of yourself. Not what other people think of you. Not what your personality trait says about you. Not what your talent thinks about you or your lack of talent. Not your gifts, your talents, your abilities, not your brains, not your brawn, not your beauty. What it thinks about you and not whatever's wrong with you and what it says about you the most fundamental layer of your meaning in life, the most fundamental layer of life, the most fundamental layer of identity is the gracious love of Jesus for you. Period. Rise up. Rise like the day. Rise up. Rise high like the waves. Rise up in spite of the ache, and do it a thousand times again. I was going to end here. My wife would say, end here. No, no. Y'all, this is really funny because it's a, it's a personality trait of mine. It's a real weakness. We were playing softball. This is a, I don't even, we were playing church softball in a church softball league, our team got tired of playing with the churches for many reasons. (laughs) We wanted to play with the Friday night crew. We wanted to play with a little rougher crowd. I hit the ball, and I've never gotten a home run, and I wanted a home run, and it went. And I'll never forget, Jim Tandy was on third base. And I'm coming around first, and I'm coming around second, and he's going, slide, stop. So I'm, I feel like right now my wife's going, stop, slide, stop here. And I went, no. <laughs> and I rounded third and went for home and I hyperextended my knee, jumping over the catcher, but I won, I scored, I got a home run. So we're going to go on. Can I go on? Is this okay? I, this is a long way of saying it. I got problems. All right. But you say, but you say, I do like myself. I do think there's something special about me. I, I, I've got gifts, I've got talents, I've got abilities, I've got beauty, I've got brains, I've got brawn, I've got musicality, I've got artistic abilities. And I'm a good Christian. So Jeff, what does the Bible say to that? So Jeff, how does God respond to that? Verse 10, 4, God's about ready to answer. Here it is. We are his workmanship. That word workmanship is only used in God creating things. So in other words, we are his new creation is what the text is saying. 
We are his new creation created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you are created in Christ Jesus as a new creation who now is made to have meaning in life, that's now made to have life, that's now made to have an identity. It's now made to fight against meaninglessness, now made to fight against false identities. It's now made to fight against the deadness in your life. It's now made to fight against things that are bad works, sin. You were made for good works, which means you were made for meaningful relationships. You were made to love people and serve people, to be fully human. (coughs) You were made for meaningful ministry, which means to make friends and have gospel conversations. You were made for meaningful work, to exercise all your God-given talents, gifts, bronze, beauty, whatever it is, towards work. You were made for gratitude and joy and all the things that God has given you, not to look to them to give you meaning, not to look to them to give you an identity, not to look to them to give you life, but to be thankful for them for what they are in themselves. Money's just money. Success is just success. Failure's just failure. A home run's a home run. Yada, yada. You were made for these things. Now watch what the text says, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In other words, what God wants to push into your heart and what God wants to bring forward with joy from your lips is all that I am, all that I have, all that I do is a gift of grace. Rise up. Rise like the day. Rise up. Rise high like the waves, rise up in spite of the ache and do it a thousand times again. 